0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash Ear for more details.
1: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt.
1: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
0: So a funny thing happened this week. Uh, BBC posted um, a link on Twitter to an old bit of footage of Jim Steinman, who sadly died this week. And who's interviewing him but me? And I have no memory of it whatsoever. I saw it and you look impossibly
1: youthful. I did. Didn't I mean, how old were you? 30? No. Thirty? No. Thirty. I think I was. You 30. really look so it was young. But can you not? Really, I've got. I've got some. There are times I see clips occasionally. I can't remember doing them at all. So you can't remember talking to him. I can't really. No. No. <laughs> I, I, I'm fully prepared to accept the
0: documentary evidence in the in the film. That's me. You know that nobody faked it. No, I, that's I, that's indisputable. I, I don't actually remember it. So, anyway, so he died at the age of 73. 73. He'd, been he'd been ill for a few years, and not yeah, he? Yeah, stroke he four
1: had. years ago, so it obviously, obviously... Really interesting book, though. Interesting. It's interesting reading about him. You know, I like the idea that very early on, he didn't see the point in writing about ordinary real-life stuff. No. <laughs> he thought he was going to write about vampires and fast cars and motorbikes and fallen heroes and all that, and even at college... He wrote an entire musical, didn't he? The book, the lyrics, the music, the whole production, the whole thing. He wanted to make albums that sounded like movies. It's quite Well, he came, came at
0: it. Came at it via musical theatre, didn't he? Really? Yeah, he did. I mean, he came at it like Andrew Lloyd Webber and delights. Yeah, it, it was that that kind of angle, and he was uh, working with uh, Joseph Papp, the uh, American impresario puts on shakespeare in the park in central park did did for years uh who identified him as a a kind of coming coming talent and that's where he met meatloaf yeah yeah and meatloaf similarly was a kind of a stage performer wasn't he rather than a rock and
1: roller you know and uh, precisely they worked on a national lampoon project didn't they i think Weren't they both on that at the same time? They could well have done it. They, also, the then, Meat, then Meatloaf
0: was involved in Rocky Horror Picture Show, but you know, they, they were they were all about treading the boards, the pair of them, you know. That was that was their kind of background. And um, and he developed all those songs. That's the interesting thing to be. He developed all those songs for Meatloaf, you know, that Meatloaf was. Was the natural performer for those kind of songs, even though people around him said, "No, you got to, you got to drop the fat guy and get somebody." Get but his, isn't that? See, that's really
1: Isn't that the root of the legal wrangles, the financial wrangles that they had later? It's really interesting. If you have that amount of money, mm-hmm. that amount of profit, there's always going to be disagreement about who got their oh, fair yeah, share course, because no, there's obviously. so much of it available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just think that's a really interesting story because. Jim Steinman, they both sued each other. You know, Jim Steinman. It, it's very complicated because the Meatloaf always
0: claimed he never sued Jim Steinman. He always says, My manager sued his manager. I think it's really, really complicated story. But what was undoubt- undoubtedly the case was that uh, Meatloaf had some part in coming up with the ideas for a lot of those yeah. songs. He uh, did, and
1: claimed to have contributed yeah. to the lyrics as well. So it gets you into the done. At the, at the most basic argument is that Jim Steinman wrote those songs, as you say, for Meatloaf to perform. So without those songs, there couldn't have been any hits and there couldn't have been any great profit. But Meatloaf's argument was that without Meatloaf performing them, it was Meatloaf's version of those songs that made them hits. And Had yeah. he not been the person doing it, then A, they wouldn't have been written in the first place because they were written for Meatloaf, and B, it was Meatloaf that made them successful. So you can see what an incredibly complicated tussle that is. Oh, that it is. Think. Well, oh, and it's undoubtedly the case you get a
0: thing like this where you sell a load of records. The person who writes them makes four times as much money, yeah. if not more than yeah. that. You know, and it just keeps going forever. Because but I interviewed Meatloaf oh, in about 83. Do
1: you remember for Smash Hits? Oh, I certainly do. And uh, I think it was about 1983. And even then, he claimed that he had received very little money. He, had, I don't think he'd sued anybody, but he claimed he had received very little money. And that the managers and the agents and whatever the label had taken most of it, and uh, and uh, and he was living in a quite a modest house in upstate New York. It wasn't a very flashy place, little patch of land and a little lawnmower and his wife and his three kids. And during that interview, uh, uh, an, uh, a, a, a messenger arrived from one of the uh, one of the attorneys with a with a writ, which he claimed was claiming back some of the royalties that had been paid to him. That he then had to pay back. He, I think he claimed it was. From, for Steinman but I couldn't I didn't get the impression he made a lot of money in the first place actually so I've no idea by the end he must have done because there was so much there was bad yeah. LFL 2 and bad L 3 as well I, think, I, doors, think what,
0: I think what happens with these things though if, if you know where there's a hit there's a writ yeah. and, and so if something makes a fortune it's immediately legally challenged and therefore yeah. it's locked up it's yeah. frozen in some way so Whatever money you earn, you might not make for years. It might not actually come through for years, you know, during which time everybody expects you to be living like a millionaire. So it was obviously a very fraught story, although it didn't stop them getting back together, uh, did it, for many years later for Bat Out of Hell 2. They did. No, they did. And then Bat Out of Hell 3, I think. Yeah. Uh, And then there was the musical, which was, you know, it was launched in the UK and did quite well, I think. And yeah. was supposed to be launched in the United States, but then I think COVID intervened, and you know whether it will in the fullness of time happen, I don't know. I tell you what's interesting to me, little detail, that uh, that they shopped around Band of Hell in every, to every record company. And in nobody the United wanted States. to know. Nobody wanted to know, apart from Cleveland International. <laughs> Cleveland International, who were a small record company that happened to have a deal with CBS for distribution, uh, and they were best known for poker music, which is just absolutely. And when I was about poker music, I always think of John Candy. You know that there's, there's some film where John Candy. Uh, was it in Planes, Trains and Automobiles, I think, where they end Maybe. up in the, in the back of a van with a load of poker musicians. Yeah. It's always got a reputation as being the, the corniest form of music. But, but yeah. there is there is a market for it in the middle of the United States for, for poker music, for people who's, uh, who trace their origins back to, you know, the Czechoslovakia or whatever. Uh, but it was Cleveland International who signed him. And... Uh, and did very, very well out of it. And, of course, our our, our late colleague, uh, Mike Appleton, who was one of the people responsible for making it happen. Oh, he was, that, because that was one of those rare the, the whistle he test was the, kind of made it, didn't he? Absolutely. It? He was the guy who said, I want to... You know, he saw this video of... Uh, is it? Does it... What is what's the name of uh, the woman he sings with? I can't remember. Oh, I can't uh, remember it. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah. But he saw uh, it and then he showed, and it say, and says, it showed it. all, and all I
1: remember it was in uh, there were so many calls saying this is fantastic. They showed it the next week. And then I think he came over and did an interview and it just took off. Well he it? did. I think it took off in the UK before it Yeah, uh,
0: before it It did. They went back to the United
1: States. It did. So I, but Steinman, I was reading some things about Simon, he's he obviously just was eaten up by this idea that he'd been so unsuccessful for ages he just wanted to remind people that he'd made it and that he'd succeeded. There's a bit where he goes through an, an interview with somebody in 1996 in a French restaurant and he ordered everything on the menu said I'm going to taste everything and he ordered every single thing on the menu paid a, a bill of $800 dollars which is the sort of thing you can do if you're absurdly wealthy yeah so very odd guy and lived I think in the rest of his life just on a, lived his, on his own in some big high security house and just quite happy with his own company but obviously quite eccentric and bonkers you know yeah. but I tell you the That's... thing it made me think of slightly actually at a tangent was there was the basically roller story. Oh. Because last week, um, you know, uh, very sad, you know, Les, Les McCown died. And, um, you know, the, the Rollers is another story about an enormous profit that somehow just disappears. And that the people who expect to get some of it and probably deserve to get it's, it's a fair amount of it, don't. You know, they were put together, weren't they, by Tam Payton, son of a potato merchant, where it was. Mm-hmm. And they had their, I mean, they had huge hits, the Rollers. They had ten, top ten hits in this country. They had hits all over the world. The amount of money it must have generated. Phil Coulter and Bill Martin, I think, wrote most of the songs. One of their hits was written by two members of the the band. But otherwise, a huge amount of money. Mm. And in 1979, they were pretty much penniless. They they sued for their royalties. They had to give up because um, they couldn't afford the case. Uh, They ran out of money to pay their lawyers, and each of them settled for £30,000. Les had to had to had moved his parents out of their council house and into a house, and then had to move them back into. The oh council yes, heartbreak. I mean, absolutely heartbreaking stuff. Mm. So, I mean, is it possible that they could have genuinely earned that little? They just got a very bad deal. If you don't write the songs, and all you're getting is the PRS. If you, if you don't go, uh, then, yeah. If you I write mean, I suppose it's possible that you don't make very much, but it does seem incredible. Well, and
0: also, I think in those days, bands made. Far less than they they would make now, uh, you know, because live, you know, being being paid for life wouldn't be anything like as uh, as lucrative yeah. as it is now. Yeah, and it's possible, it's possible that every single expense they occurred got deducted from what they earned. Yeah, that's one of the things that tends to happen. You know, as we discussed in the past, the small faces, you know, you know people can live large while working like hell. Not realizing that living large is costing them a lot of money. Yeah. And, uh, but who knows? That's I know, I was thinking I about that as
1: the comparison with the, the humble pie and the small face. So I think you were other bands that have been monstrously ripped off. But I mean, but also I felt quite fond, I felt quite fondly about the, the Rollers. There was a, there was a, a, the Guardian writer, Caroline Sullivan, wrote a book about being obsessed with the Rollers, She's actually very, very good. There's a lot of it in it. Yeah. And it's one of the first, because they were, the biggest fan mania sensation since the Beatles, which we even forget, don't we? Mm-hmm. It hadn't been anything like it. And She wrote this book called Bye Bye Baby: My Tragic Love Affair with the Bay City Rollers, and she was quite old when she got interested. She was seventeen when she got interested. She never wore the tartan, you know. And uh, but she said, I can remember there's a bit in the book which I read about what the feeling was like when you were, when there were so many of you running down the streets that you stopped the traffic, that you closed streets and the police couldn't control you, and how incre- incredibly thrilling that was. That was quite uh-huh. interesting, really. I've so,
0: always felt the, the, the core of uh, teenage girls' hysteria is nothing to do with the group at all. It's just to do with feeling the power.
1: I think it's, it is, It's Absolutely. just to do
0: with, let's fill this room with noise. You yeah. know? Let's stop the traffic. Let's stop that. the traffic. Let's it call doesn't it. matter whether it's Bassett or the Beatles or yeah. It
1: gives you some kind of power and
0: control. Absolutely. It's really, it's really yeah. Very yeah. exciting.
1: The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week.
0: So 45 years ago this week, this... The Ramones' first album,
1: forty-five years, forty-five ago. years ago. What a what a photo on the front, too, isn't it? It's fantastic? a br- it's an absolutely brilliant picture, brilliant image. Which they paid one hundred and twenty-five dollars for that. Really, that was money well spent, wasn't really, it? Is that is that the basis of their of their logo,
0: actually? When we were we talking the other day about the fact that you can now get a Ramones
1: T-shirt from Marx's box. Marks and Spencer's. Marks and Spencer's. Marks we were Spencers. trying to work out whether Marks and Spencer's had paid anything for the right to do that. No, but they—they whether... they just <laughs>
0: they, but the Ramones logo. It's like the Rolling Stones logo. It's probably probably the most valuable asset of uh, you know uh, of the of the group. And so it's just a thing you keep publishing, isn't it? And you make money out of it whichever way you can. Anyway, the thing that struck me about this forty-five years ago, and I remember, I was working in a record shop when this came out. Import copies. Oh, there they are! We thought we looked at the cover. We'd heard of them. We looked at the cover. We thought the cover. Oh, that's funny in itself, isn't it? Is it? You know, that's kind of four guys. It's cartoonish. And they're all wearing leather, leather jackets, and look, his T-shirt's too short. And they're in uniform. They've all got sneakers. They're completely in uniform. They're called the Ramones. That's they've, kind of funny the, as well. They've got the same and they, name. And then we played it. And, and I remember, everybody laughed. Now, I don't mean that they laughed derisively or anything like that. You know, you played in the shop, and and there were a load of customers in the shop. It was an average afternoon. And people just looked up. And, because first, first track starts one two three four doo, 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 doo. here it goes like that and then it, it stopped what scene in, in a way that seemed extremely abrupt and then there was a, a, a bit of silence then you heard one two three four da, da, and off it went again and and it, it five stren- songs
1: make... under two minutes long.
0: It, Am it, I right under, no they're slightly longer I was just looking there two I twelve five two thirty of them are two yeah five From, they're under two minutes. One yeah, where Judy's Punk, one thirty, Chainsaw one fifty five. Yeah, quite a few were under One thirty, a song was one thirty long. He said, "Made it's "So, but people, people thought it was funny. You know, they they were the, the idea of it was funny. It was like a piece of conceptual art. Yeah, and uh, it really struck me as quite significant. This because not not far off, around about the same time." There was another record which proved to be highly influential, similarly influential, which was similarly regarded as, as a bit of a novelty comedy record,
1: and that was Kraftwerks' Autobahn. Absolutely. You know, they But they're quite similar, don't you think? Because with the Ramones, it didn't seem to me to be that important that you knew which one was which. They seemed to be interchangeable. I felt the same with Kraftwerk. With Kraftwerk, I thought, well, and that was the point. They were meant to be these robots, these automatons, these these machines, these holograms or whatever. You know, it didn't really matter. I don't remember ever really learning the names of any members of Kraftwerk or what instrument they played, because that didn't seem obvious either. It wasn't like, he's the drummer, he's the bass player, like rock and roll, you know. And I felt they were very similar. I agree with you. They were kind of little cartoons, and also uniform there was a sense of uniform, but they looked the same on stage, you know. And with with, with Autobahn, it was you know the single was
0: out there, and then people yeah. said, "Do you know what? They've made an album." <laughs> what really? Yeah, it's an album, and it's also called Autobahn, and it goes on longer. And they thought, "Wow, that is a really wacky conceptual joke." And then later on, they made another album. You know what I mean? It was it um, it was, it was coming at you in a totally different way. Yeah, completely. And that's uh, that was probably what made it so revolutionary. Anyway, I remember yeah. finding it hard
1: to process that they didn't have a rhythm section, actually, at the time, which makes me sound really, really old-fashioned, which I guess I am. Yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of people thought, well, hang on, what? Because you're be used it. to Can't orientating... <laughs> no, you, you had to orientate yourself around the way groups looked, and he yeah, does yeah. that, and she does that, and, you know. Yeah. And I felt a bit lost. But there was a, just a, a lovely thing Danny Daddy Baker tweeted. I'm sure you saw it, and was saying that um, the... Uh, I think it was Tommy Ramone had said that that Blitzkrieg... You know, the Hey Ho, Let's Go yeah, chart yeah, yeah. was inspired by Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers. And if you listen to Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers, it's exactly the same. It came out, I think, the year before, actually, seventy. 75, uh-huh. and uh, so Danny's whole thing is—is—is is, is, you know, okay. So if the basic rollers were the, the inspiration for, for 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 the Ramones, then you know, without the rollers, no punk rock. He's <laughs> <You're laughs> probably it? Pitch, pitching it a bit high, but it quite yeah. though. No, well, it's quite like, funny. Yeah, well, it's like
0: without all of rock and roll history, no punk rock, because it was all just completely based on stuff that had gone before, wasn't it? Yeah, you know? well, absolutely. There's, there's always a certain sector of the population whose attention you can only get if you say, without this, no punk rock. have yeah. to go, oh, my God. Hang on, that's that, the thing that, I like that, and feel strongly about. serious. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care about disco music. Yeah, but or punk rock is the musical. foundation. <laughs> my, my whole world has been overthrown. <laughs> absolutely. This is terrible. So 45 years ago. Yeah. Can you believe that? Absolutely, absolutely. It's amazing. so what have we been doing this week we've spoken to uh we talked to richard thompson we talked to richard thompson uh about his book beeswing and that'll be with you soon we talked earlier in the week uh to ricky lee jones about her book last chance texaco which will be with you soon Two books with something in common. I think you were thinking, Mark.
1: Well, I was because they both uh, they're both about the early years, and they both end at the point where the the, the authors have had their greatest success. Uh, Ricky Lee Jones, I think, ends about two or three years after kind of Chucky's in Love and the first yeah, album, and yeah. the breakthrough. And Richard Thompson's record ends in. Uh, trying to think what year it was now, 83, I don't know, I think he's still got something like 14 albums to come, you know. <laughs> and uh, you think, that's really interesting. You know, memoirs that concentrate only on the liftoff. I thought that was quite interesting, because, you know, most memoirs you read them and they had the same kind of... Um, have the same rhythm don't they all that excitement and all that it's all new and it's all groundbreaking and uh you know they're young and they're seeing everything through fresh eyes for the first time and then after that it does become repetitive and it it starts to kind of flatten out doesn't it it's a series of solo albums and it's a tour and it's a reunion you know and i really like the idea of both those books actually rightly or wrongly that you're left are on a real high you're not left to that point where, now i look back over my life a, they're, you're left at the moment when they've they've had their their most their most success you know and it, it, it's it's the most exciting no that's not true it's not the biggest commercial success but it's the most exciting creative period almost definitely yeah. of their of their, their
0: life but it's also the period that is most incident packed isn't it yeah, it is Yeah, the most hectic period yeah because because also things used to move more quickly as we frequently remarked whereas when people get into middle age and beyond and so forth it's one record every 18 months or whatever yeah you know it just proceeds at a different pace doesn't it it doesn't it but it's doesn't, one of the
1: reasons I like, like the Dylan's exciting. chronicles i think Dylan's chronicles is based on 1961, 1970 and 1989 those are the three periods he, he concentrates on because he happened to be writing sleeve yeah. notes for the uh, yeah. reissues of those albums and therefore you don't get that feeling that it's, it's 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 all over or you're or you're on the way down or you know everything's kind of quieting out and leveling out at the end and i thought it was quite interesting i, I wanted if more people should think about doing It that just end that's that been the next intense that,
0: excitement that will be the next thing for the people who've already written their um autobiography is to just go back and write a book about one of their records yeah for one year or something like that yeah there's to be a lot of people who'd be really interested in it yeah it? there's probably there's probably endless detail that they could get into yeah if they did that
1: yeah so, anyway. And the, and the other thing I thought with, with the Richard Thompson, which I thought he made a really good point, he's talking about folk rock snobbishness. <laughs> Didn't you think that was interesting? There's a lovely oh, bit yeah. where he's invited, it's very early days of Fairport Convention, he and Sandy Denny are invited to um, Paul McCartney's birthday party. <laughs> and he got a handwritten invitation to invite Paul McCartney's birthday party. And he said, he thinks about it, he thinks, well, they're a pop group, aren't they, the Beatles? <laughs> pop group, you know, it's all superficial. It's all a bit glib. A bit cheap and cheerful, you know. We're, we're, we're folk music, and he decides not to go. Sandy then goes, has an absolutely fantastic time. He refuses to go because he can't lower himself to, to associate with people in the pop world. I thought that was really interesting. And then he talked about, talked about the folk world generally as being people who, who abided by a kind of egalitarian rule that uh, if anybody had success, if anybody breaks away, it happens to Jerry Rafty, it happens to Billy Connolly, it happens to various others, you know, then the others are kind of really disapp- disapproving. I think they've somehow betrayed folk music. Didn't you think that was interesting? Did you say, it reminded me of that time. It was so competitive between Fairpool Convention, Steel Eyes Band, and Pentangle, about who could be the most kind of authentic folk yeah. group. Do you yeah, remember who's, that? Who's if most you think most real? About, yeah, who's the most real? <laughs> they were all trying to go back and find the earliest songs, I think Hunting Song pentangle did i think was something like 16th or 17th century you know and then and then fairport had set up this this whole thing about it being a, a kind of uh you know an academic exercise in in, in kind of uh, in preserving uh british and english roots music and uh, steel ice span you know were the ones with the with the most complicated medieval harmonies and time signatures you know and pentangle went to the point where they 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 didn't even use electric instruments so it was all acoustic, and we are the purists because we, you know, and 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 they had no performance; they didn't perform. Jackie McShee sat down; she was just her vocal was just another instrument. It wasn't yeah, part of some yeah. projection. I mean, all that's quite interesting, really. And uh, you know how how snobbish it all was. We are all snobs, uh, actually ourselves. I mean, I, I admit that we all we all feel
0: that we're above certain things. Well, popular music is founded on yeah. snobbery. Yeah, so, you know, it's, completely. It's, it's it's the key driver. It's it's. It's not, I like the sound of it. It's, no, I like the idea of it. That's yeah. what people really like about it, you know. Yeah. And they've worked out that this bit is superior to this bit.
1: Speaking it's, like of, it's like bebop above all the
0: rest of jazz, yeah. you know. Speaking of which, <laughs> and uh, falls from grace, I've intrigued to follow the continuing adventures, misadventures of Morrissey who's, who's t- taking numberage of the fact that he's been depicted in a... What is it, The Simpsons? Wow. It's The
1: Simpsons, yeah. It's an episode of The Simpsons called Panic on the Streets of Springfield. <laughs> and he features a, a character called Quillaby. Uh, voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch. I've not seen this. But I think it sounds quite funny. I think Lisa has a dream, doesn't she? There's this young, uh, rather depressed British singer from the 1980s who's vegan and he sports a, a, a quiff and he has an Oscar Wilde poster. And he has songs that include How Late Is Then, Hamburger Homicide, and everybody, Everyone Is Horrid Except For Me And Possibly You. So it's fairly obvious who this person is. And then she has this dream, and then the dream is shattered when he morphs into a kind of grey, meat-eating, overweight man with anti-immigrant views. <laughs> and Morrissey himself, as you know, is sort of taken over and we Obviously, you and I aren't going to get into a very deep conversation about this. We've had our tangles with Morrissey in the past. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, he, he had this wonderful quote saying, I've had enough horror thrown at me to kill off a herd of bison. <laughs> You can imagine mopping his brow a la kind of <laughs> Jesse, on, his, Jesse, on his fainting you know. couch. Hey, on, his, oh, on, his, on his chaise long with his oh, bottle of laudanum conveniently. Oh, oh. But uh, no, my theory was that well, it's not my theory, it's fairly obvious that, that I think that there is no uh, hell hath no fury. Uh, like that of a Smiths fan who feels left out. Oh, down. absolutely. I mean, I think I, I went back. I, think, I thought I, I will. I'm prepared to bet that the person who wrote this episode, the people involved were huge Morrissey fans. And of course they are. The, this episode was written by a guy called Tim Long, an American guy. He saw the Queen is Dead tour and he said it changed his life. Although it, he maybe. says so, the character's not just Morrissey. <laughs> it's also Robert Smith of the Cure and it's Ian Curtis. That's not the point. This is a guy who feels mortally and I think it's really interesting because I think, apart from, obviously, the sex scandals, which is a totally different thing the Chuck Berry and, you know, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Michael Jackson, but you know, apart from those, can you think of of, of, a, of a rock musician whose, whose star has fallen so rapidly as Morrissey's? Because you see, people I, had so much invested I, in him. The people I, we know, we're too I, old. I, can,
0: you know, I come at it the other way because I, yeah. I never had anything invested in Morrissey at all. I don't care about Morrissey at all. Yeah. I quite like a few Smiths records. I quite like a few Morrissey. I re- in fact, I very much like a few Morrissey records. But I've never bothered about Morrissey at all. But I've worked with loads of people who are obsessed with Right, Morrissey. but that's it. We're too or old. obsessed yeah, but- with Morrissey. Than you or I were ever obsessed with the Beatles. Completely. Or Bob because and the thing White. about Morrissey was utterly obsessed with.
1: They totally changed their view of the world. And they are
0: umbilically connected to Morrissey. Yeah. So everything that goes on in Morrissey's world bothers them like crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, and there's a part of me that is kind of mischievous admiration of the way that Morrissey has carried on like he doesn't care about this at all you know that we admire traditionally you know, in rock and roll people venerate the rebel the person who doesn't care what the rest of the herd wants you know yeah. who goes their own way yeah but boy people don't like it when somebody really doesn't like the way that doesn't act the way that the rest of the herd acts and goes his own way And he's deliberately done this in the last 10 years. He's obviously said, I don't care if this affects my popularity. This is the way I am. These are the things I think.
1: Does he yeah. not care? Because there are all these kind of <clears throat> there are these sort of wounded kind of bleating comments like here. I mean, he has contacted the world via his manager to say that he's extremely displeased about the way that he's portrayed in this thing. He has never been that overweight. He's never been this, that, and the other. You know, and uh, if he didn't care, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have had any response at all. But I take your point. I mean, I, 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 I kind of. I'm, I'm slightly admiring of the way he just kind of carries on with doing precisely what is not yeah. expected of him. Yeah. Um, whether you approve of it or not. But it is interesting. And I can't think of anybody who was more kind of revered, really, as you say. Now, I was too old. When the Smiths came along, I was, I don't know how old I was, 28 or something. So I was just, I, I, you've got to be 15 to be, to be really yeah. in kind of at the yeah. white heat of these things. But the effect that it had on people... Um, you know his 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 whole way of looking at the world, his attitudes, his, the, the, the supercharged poetry of his songs, the vegetarian campaigning, everything, the political issues. Yeah, it had an incredible effect. So it's like a divorce. I mm. think these people feel that they were kind of they were absolutely wedded to him, and now they can't they can't deal with it anymore. Mm. Yeah, there are there are various musicians who just became kind of whipping posts. You know. Sting and you know uh, Phil Collins people just duffed up by the press the whole time but not to this extent because nobody held them with that in that kind of reverence in the first place really and uh I I just can't think Do you remember he was for a while he was Saint Stephen at the NME they had their pictures of him on the cover he's referred to as Saint Stephen I can't think of an equivalent really
0: (laughs) it's a long way to fall well yeah well he's uh you know he's made his own bed and he yes. appears happy to lie in it. So, you know, <laughs> who are we to argue?
1: Yeah. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit.
0: So any other business, Alex? we got an we event, haven't we? We have got an indeed. event on July the 17th. It's been, I think, the, the, the previous last live event uh, where we were there in person in the same... In the same space was what it was, march, it was 8th. march 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 last year yeah last year, march, yeah, march, last yeah. year. and uh, we're delighted to announce that on july the 17th this year we'll be bringing you not a word in your ear not a word in your attic but a word in your park or a word in the park and the park in question is holland park uh, in west london and we're very delighted to say that through the kind offices of Opera Holland Park and James Clutton. Uh, We're able to use their covered auditorium, uh, which they set up every year in front of Holland House in Holland Park. Uh, And that'll be on a Saturday afternoon on July the 17th between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock, where we're going to present two hours of what we're calling, what, what Alan Partridge would undoubtedly call, Top Rock Chat, wouldn't he? I suppose he would, wouldn't he? <laughs> uh, he
1: would. Uh, with, Rock and roll storytelling. With, there you go. With, Great folklore uh, with, revisited.
0: Yeah, with uh, revisited you know, for the first time. guests to be announced in due course. But it should be a good opportunity for people to kind of get together in a socially distanced auditorium, you know, with uh, all COVID protocols fully observed and and we can guarantee it's going to be a
1: lovely day, isn't it? We've ordered that. We've booked the weather. No, that's that's We've booked. we the weather. Yeah, it cost us, actually, but it's going to be worth it. Do you so it's, it's going to be a scorcher.
0: It's going to be good. scorcher. Think rosé, think, it, uh, you it, know. It's also record, record shop day, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and so there may be some people who are coming into town on that day to... Uh, to buy some records, and so what better way to finish off the, the, the second half of the day uh, than, to, uh, than to come to Word in your park in Holland Park. So how do people get tickets for this, Alex?
1: By opening their laptop or their phone, device of their choice, and going to uh There should be a widget on the front page of the website where you can easily get your tickets. Good.
0: And we'll have further. And details. And we'll put the link at the
1: end of this uh, podcast yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, yeah.
0: We'll have further details in due course, and uh, you know who's going to be on the on the bill and joining us this uh, that afternoon in due course. But we hope to see as many of you as possible uh, on what's bound to be pretty special, uh a special occasion in a very special place. We we look forward to here. We, hope we can look forward to seeing you there. Uh, meanwhile, usual, if you're not already a Patreon supporter, please consider becoming one. Uh, go to patreon.com slash word in your ear for full details about how you can get involved. What have we got coming up? We've got the usual quiz on Friday nights at 6 o'clock. Uh, Bernie Marsden, I think. Okay, we're, we're doing a crowdcast with Bernie Marsden on, uh, on Monday evening. Uh, about Richard his, Thompson uh, is going uh, to be out soon, uh, the Richard, Richard Thompson, Jones. Yeah, those will be out with you soon, and uh, even more in the pipeline. So, uh, you know, we'll be there
1: if you'll be there. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.